0: Welcome to Tzarek Ian, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for divergent perspectives informed by both study and lived
1: experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panimah Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Tzaruch Iyun podcast brought to you by Yeshivat Oreita. My name is David Silverstein, and today I'm joined by my friend and my neighbor in Modiin, Rebele Fischer. Rebele, thank you so much for coming on the Tzaruch Iyun podcast. Pleasure to be here. So before we get to the topic of today, I just want to sort of address a few housekeeping issues. And one of the comments that we've gotten from various listeners is that they really enjoy the podcast. The only wish it would be a little bit longer oftentimes in the podcast we get you know into a discussion, there's a lot more to talk about. And the podcast sometimes feels like it's ending preemptively. So someone said to me, you know, could you make the podcast two hours or three hours? You know, unfortunately, we don't have the exact same budget as uh, Joe Rogan in terms of you know inviting guests and having three hour blocks to be able to dialogue about important ideas. But I think the critique is on point. and what we're trying to do now is shift a little bit the format of the podcast to ensure that every topic that we cover is at least covered through different angles in two separate podcasts so today for example we're starting a series on rabbinic authority uh, the first guest is obviously going to be ravelli fisher and the next guest will be Blau. and both uh, podcasts albeit from different angles will be centered around the topic of rabbinic authority and therefore hopefully this will give us sort of a fuller um, deep dive into the topic and provide uh, more context for the curious listener so with that brief introduction i thought we would start uh ravelli turning to the topic at hand the question of rabbinic authority So I've been a a Rebbe uh, in yeshiva for many years, and I would say if I had to sort of evaluate, you know, what are the top five questions that students are curious about, so I think for for sure one of the top five would be the role of uh, rabbinic authority in a contemporary Jewish life. So aside from being a Talmachacham, you're also a historian. I thought we would begin, if you could provide some historical context for thinking a little bit about this question of rabbinic authority and have there been times throughout Jewish history where the challenge of rabbinic authority has been uh, particularly pronounced. You, you wrote a very important article um, in the Jewish Review of Books with your brother-in-law and also fellow modiin neighbor, Shai Sekunda, right about uh, about the question of uh, the Talmud in the context of uh, a world where we have access to the Talmud on iPads, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things you point out there, and also another thing, oral presentation you talked about, was the challenge of rabbinic authority in the period of the Gaonim. So maybe you could start with that. Talk a little bit about rabbinic authority in the period of the Gaonim, and sort of how, how, how did that play out? Okay, so I want to make a crucial distinction
0: when talking about what we talk about when we talk about rabbinic authority. So rabbinic authority, in most discussions of rabbinic authority, it's addressed as a, a question of doctrine. There's a doctrine of rabbinic authority where you know, it's, it's addressed in many forms, das Torah or Emunat HaChamim, Right? What are my obligations vis-a-vis listening, listening to the rabbis? Um, or what are the rabbis' privileges? You know, what is the status of sak And these are important doctrinal issues, right? especially when you get into things like, you know, halacha is very pluralistic. Different meaning in the sense that different people have different sakim, You know, Ashkenazim and Sfarim, or you know, one follows the Satmaru and another one follows Ruv Moshe Feinstein. And what they're doing is going to look very different, but we 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 have the system tolerates a certain amount of of pluralism. So where's you know what are the boundaries of that pluralism? Who's who's off the reservation, as it were? And that's a historical question. Meaning, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees were the Essenes were off the reservation. I'm more interested what I call rabbinic authority as a social fact. At the end of the day, our the Judaism that we practice that we practice today is structured in a way that there is a, you know, we, we do take guidance from the rabbis, whether it's living rabbis or rabbis whose words have already become codified. So, and we don't even we don't even think about the degree to which it pervades our our practice of Judaism. Because you know the things we, we take a sitter off the shelf. It's just a sitter, right? What's included in the sitter? What's not included in the sitter? How is the shul structured? How is the shul not structured? Um, how you know what are our tefillin look like and the the food that we eat. The these are all things that are um, you know that have gone through that have been filtered through. You know what brachos we make. What nusuch of brachos we make. These are all things that have filtered through the rabbis at one point or another and we've sort of accepted that like okay this is what the rabbi said so this is this is judaism um and that's actually a very long historical process The the social fact of rabbinic authority the fact that the rabbis the rabbinic movement shaped the judaism that we practice today and continue to shape the judaism that we practice today that's what i talk about when i'm talking about rabbinic authority Okay, so you mentioned the Go'onim, and it's as good a starting point as any. In the time of the Gaonim, right? So we're talking about the last few centuries of the first millennium, right? The eight hundreds, the nine hundreds, even into the into the eleventh century, the one thousands. You have several different, I would say, forms of Judaism that look very, very different from one another. One is Karaism, right? The Karaim, that looks very different. That has its own set of, you know, that has certain very, very basic differences in terms of in terms of what's practiced. There still are Karaites around today, and the movement never completely died out. Uh, But in the time of the Gaonim, it was a real it was real competition to to the rabbis. Now, when I say the rabbis here, when I talk about the Gaonim, I'm specifically talking about the Geonim of Bavel, the Roshe Yeshiva of the Babylonian Yeshivot, the, the Babylonian academies, founded in Surah and Pumbedita. Starting in the 700s, they both moved to Baghdad, which was the capital city of, uh, I think it was the Abbasid Caliphate, and it was basically, it became the center of world civilization in, in, those, in that era. And the Babylonian Geonim, right, they had inherited from Earlier, from the time of the Amoraim, this notion that the Babylonian academies are the are the Torah al Alpet in its most pristine form. They have they received the true Torah Shabbat right? Alpet, and this was part of their self consciousness. And they saw that you know they could link themselves back all the way to. They would say that the first Rish Galuta, the first exilarch, the first leader of the Babylonian Jewish academy was. Yochanya Melch Yehuda, who was exiled to Babylonia from from Yehuda, even meaning at the end of Bayat Rishon, and that his family became exilarchs, and that the and that they were they were truer transmitters of the Torah Shabbat. Path. This was very much a part of their self-image. And we see it in letters that they that they were their associates. So there's one from Rabbi Natan Habavli, there's another one from the uh, a fellow by the name of Pirkoi ben Baboy, who talks about you know, why it is that diaspora communities, that all communities should accept the rulings of the Gaonim because they are the instantiation of Torah Shbaal And now part that Baal Peh, that's a key part of it because their learning was mainly oral. They had people who had memorized things, and they had people who had memorized sugyas, and they had people who had memorized Mishnayot, they had people that had memorized Amoreak Dikta. There was an entire yeshiva. The way that the yeshiva functioned was that there would be um it was orally. They didn't have things written down. And they felt that the really the only way to church is to, to teach is Ishmi Pi Ish, right? From teacher to student. And they managed over the course of those few hundred years. To convince Kallah Israel, for the most part, that they're right. I Meaning, there were communities in Egypt and certainly in Eretz Israel that, for them, the, the book that was Koveya, most important book, was the Talmud Yerushalmi. That was their that reflected their tradition. They went according to the Yerushalmi. Today, any any all of Rabbinic Judaism and really all of Judaism is, is you know, Rabbinic Judaism, we accept the Talmud Bavli as sort of as constitutional, as the basis for our law uh, of, of halacha, and even, even groups who no longer believe that are descendants of such movements. So who decided, how did it come to be that the Bavli was accepted? Well, that was the work of the ge'onim. But by sending these letters, by you know fundraising and had access to caravans from Baghdad, which was the center of an empire, they were able to maintain, the, they were able per, to persuade other communities that if you want to do the correct thing, if you want to do the proper thing, you should be following us, not the Karaites and not the pretenders in, in Eretz Israel.
1: And just to clarify, just to clarify, in other words, you're saying that the, the unique sort of model of the Goonim at this point, let's say, opposed to, for example, the Karaites, is that they're claiming uh, authority heavily based on their idea that an oral tradition is the real tradition. In other words, there's sort of… tradition. Exactly. In other words, there's sort of… You could hear sort of the dialogue between them and the Karaites, right, because Karaites obviously reject, right, the oral law. Right. So by them claiming that the source of our authority is our unique connection to Sinai and the oral law, they're making a claim that the nature of authority, right, being specifically sort of framed in an environment where having an oral tradition makes it sort of the source of their authority.
0: Yeah. And they're even saying it vis a vis other like competing rabbinic sources of authority, like the Yerushalmi. They're saying that we have a more, we have a better and a, and a clearer transmission. Than, than they did in Eretz Israel. What we do is the correct way. What they do in Eretz Israel is is not correct. Meaning the Bavli is superior to the Yerushalmi just because it has a better trans a better transmission. Right? There's a famous question that, you know, why do we follow the Bavli, not the Yerushalmi? And there are different answers that have been given. But for, as a historical matter, the people who, you know, who 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 saw themselves as the inheritors of the Bavli, the Gaonim. They successfully persuaded Claudius Yisrael that their that their authority is is superior to the authority of any competitors
1: so you can obviously see you know, if you're thinking about this story almost like a movie, you know, you, can, you can feel the tension right now because obviously right, once they start to write things down, well obviously this challenges right their whole authoritative structure right in other words, I, I feel like the buildup in your presentation you know is leading to this point. So what happens when things start to shift
0: yeah, so they succeeded, and people start asking all of their questions to Gaonim and Bavel, right? And they would send a little bit of money, and there was this vast network um, across North Africa and into Southern Spain of people who are asking these, you know, who are asking the, the Gaonim questions, right? The first Siddur, called Siddur Rav Amram Gaon, was basically a community writing to the gaonim in Bavel, and we're like, all right, we got a whole bunch of different things going on here. We have a whole bunch of different men hugging him about what people say and what we do when we get to shul in the morning. Can you like sort of write down for us what we're supposed to say and when? And the gaon, I don't think Rav Amram Gaon was actually a gaon, meaning I don't think he was one of the the Rosh Yeshiva, but he was certainly in their circle. So he's like, sure, I got this. And he sits down and he writes like, okay, first you say this, then you say this, then you say this, then you, and that's the first sitter. Right, he organized and arranged the tefilos, the first siddhar. Um, and there were others that did it after him. Right, Rav Sagi Gon also wrote a sitter, uh, you know, answering a different question. So that's already in the that's in the eight hundreds. Rav Amram Gon was earlier. At a certain point, you know, the the communities that were receiving these letters, you know, this became part of their, you know, what they were getting was written, right, because you know, if the Gaonim are in Baghdad and these communities are in Cairo or in Kairouan or in, you know, even further west, they, uh, it's not easy to communicate, you know, it takes some time. And so they sort of start archiving what they have. They start, they they start archiving the letters that they're getting, right. And they want to study things. So they start building up what they remember. They start writing down what they remember. This is the, the, this whole this whole era is very vague. We have very little left from it. Well, you know, the main repository obviously is the Cairo Geniza, and there you really do see, um, you know, the, how this starts to evolve. And obviously, this only covers North Africa. When it comes to Ashkenaz, the story is the story is going to be different. But at a certain point, there is this shift from, you know, people in the local communities are studying written texts they're no longer they're no longer learning they're no longer studying orally right or maybe they were still studying orally in babylonia but that wasn't really so feasible for the people that were far away so those people started studying from texts and at a certain point we have people who have studied the texts the written texts and they can answer these questions so the there are fewer and fewer or the, the questions that they're sending to the gaonim start to shift. Instead of questions like, what are we supposed to say at Shahari? It's questions like, Oh, what's the correct girsa of this Gemara? Um, you know, much more sophisticated questions. And at a certain point, it stops altogether because you have, you know, people like the Rif. The Rif is um, you know, he he's he's a younger contemporary of Rav Gon, R- or Rabbeinu Khananel. Right, you have people like Rabbeinu Hananel, Rabbeinu Nisim, the Rif, who are in North A- They're all in North Africa, and they're and they're experts, right? They're perfect. They're more than capable of handling these questions on their own. So they're not sending the questions to Bavel anymore. So Bavel, after Rav Rav and Rav Rav and Rav in the eleventh century, they were not the last Gonim. The last They were Gonim until um, you know until for hundreds of years still, after Rav Hai and Rav Shira Gon, but, but, but nobody was asking them questions anymore, or they weren't considered the, you know, why why am I going to ask a Goan in Baghdad if I've got the Rambam right here, if I've got Rabbeinu Tam right here?
1: But but what exactly changes? In other words, if you think about it, so all of a sudden you have a situation where you have Goanim effectively creating a genre of like Chuvot, right? In other words, you have this sort of like response to literature that sort of starts effectively in that time of the Gonim, right? And then, you know, when things start to get written down, so, you know, that, that obviously tends to sort of challenge, right, the, their authority of things being oral. So what, what's the pushback? Meaning their, their counterclaim is what? Is that you should continue to ask us questions because we have a received tradition? Or are they claiming that somehow yeah. that, uh, you know, the written tradition that other, other people are having access to, you know, maybe something, but it certainly doesn't have the full richness of an oral tradition?
0: That's exactly what they were claiming. But at a certain point, people stopped listening to their claim, right? And this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying that there's there's the social fact of rabbinic authority, and there's the and there's the doctrine of rabbinic authority. The doctrine of the Geonim stayed the same. We are the source of all Torah Shabaal Pet. But as a matter of social fact, at a certain people, at a certain point, people stopped really buying into that doctrine.
1: So this this is a really fascinating framing. Let's sort of uh, move forward a little bit from the ninth century to the twenty first century. I realize as, as a historian that may just you know be I may have just broken every rule. Of like you know, can we,
0: can we make one stop though? Can absolutely, we stop we can, off
1: quickly. Absolutely, in the
0: 16th century. Absolutely, sixteenth century
1: is a great place.
0: place because you have a similar thing happening when you know with the Shulchan Aruch, right? That there were rabbinim that, as a matter of doctrine, were saying you shouldn't be paskening from the Shulchan Aruch. You can't in from the Shulchan Aruch. You have to understand the Sugiahs. You have to know, right? You have to know your stuff. You can't just open up the book and see what you should do, right? And then you can jump, yeah, let's jump to the 21st century where people are saying the same thing about, well, let's you know, just say, well, while you mentioned, century, or right. Shemir Shabbos and right. things like okay. that.
1: Well, before we get, since you mentioned the 16th century, maybe we could spend a little bit more time in that framing, actually. And really, it's an interesting sort of place to be for a little bit. You know, obviously, the the Shulchan Aruch has a code, you know, it's assumed to be sort of a default uh, code nowadays. Obviously, at its time, when it's written, it's, you know, there's a lot of, You know, infighting is quite contentious, right, about whether or not this is actually a good thing, right, or or a bad thing. So this is a shift, though, in terms of thinking about the challenge that the Ga'onim had, right? In other words, the Ga'onim are claiming that they have access to an oral tradition, and therefore, you know, by definition, that makes their tradition superior. Right here, you know, the claim isn't that the Shulchan Aruch, right, is sort of denying the oral tradition. It's simply that you know, he's sort of codifying in a way, at least one of the critiques is that he's oversimplifying the halachic process, right? All of a sudden, you know, anybody thinks they can open up the Shulchan Aruch and think they know a lot of the world of Psak, right? Whereas the assumption of some of his critics is is that if you really want to understand halacha in its totality, you have to have a mastery of the Talmud and the codes, and certainly not sufficient just to open up the Shulchan Aruch and read read the bottom line, right? So that is in many ways uh, a shift from the time of the Gaonim in terms of thinking about what is the nature of the critique.
0: Well, it's, it's a shift, and it's also, in a lot of ways, it's the shift from written to printed, meaning if the Gaonim are living through the shift from oral to written, then that period, the period of the Shulchan Aruch, is coming in the wake of the shift, or is part of the shift, from written to printed. Now, what's the difference between written, written and printed? So we talked about the sitter of Rav Amram Gaon. So a funny thing happened with the sitter of Rav Amram Gaon. People started copying the sitter of Ravam Gon because they wanted, because they wanted, you know, it's useful, right, to have a sitter. Except that if the sitter of Ravamram Gon gets to a community where they don't do things precisely like they do in Ravamram Gon and it in, like what Ravamram Gon says to do. And they say, oh, well, this isn't very useful for us because we do something a little bit different. So they just they copy it with a little bit of local variety, leave things out, they'll add a couple of things, because You know, today we talk about, oh, there's a manuscript. You want to be extremely meticulous about how you use a manuscript. You want to make sure that it's oath, but oath, letter, word for word, letter for letter, um, exactly how, how it's written. In the time of the, you know, in the medieval period, manuscripts were meant to be useful, right? And, you know, these were the only books that people had. These were books. And so when you copy it over, you don't copy it over with the th- thinking, I need to make this as close to the original as possible, you copy it over thinking, I need to make this as useful as possible. And if your community has a little bit of a, of a difference, then you're going to copy it over a little bit differently. Now think about that in context of halachic works. Well, the sitter is a good example because the sitter is, in some ways, it's not exactly a halachic work, meaning it's not a legal code, but it is a normative work, meaning it Tells you what you're supposed to do, right? You say this here, you skip this, except on this day. Here, the minute is to cry. Here, the minute is to jump. Whatever it is, right? And and so you have you end up with a lot of variety within these manuscripts. it When it comes to halakhic codes, and this is especially true in Ashkenaz, when it comes to books like or the mortified right which these are like the key books of these are the key records of psa in the ashkenazic world every manuscript is going to be different you know people had them and there's no order it's just sort of accretes over time sometimes you can look at manuscripts of like let's say the um the smog or the Smok, which were more popular works but they have you know, you you, you have, it, it almost looks like a page of a Gemara, except that instead of, you know, a main text with text on the side, there's like three different layers of like there's the main text and then there's the glosses and commentaries on that. And then there's the glosses and commentaries on that. And then there's the glosses and commentaries on that. And things are extremely local. Things are extremely varied based on where you are and, and who you are. And the mass, the way to master that material is very different than the way to master, let's say, a a Shulchan Aruch, or something that's organized along the lines of a Shulchan Aruch, or a Beis Yosef.
1: It's interesting, because if you think about it, obviously there there are parallels, even though historically there's a big gap between the 16th century and the 21st century, right? But there are parallels in terms of thinking about the way in which rabbinic authority is challenged, not the doctrine of it, but, you know, sort of like the, the, the way it's applied. Right, in terms of the shift from you know manuscripts to printed material. And all of a sudden you get to the 21st century and you have a different challenge, right? Which all of a sudden, you know, everybody not only has access to books, but you have search engines. And search engines allow, you know, anybody to claim, you know, that they have a mastery of the totality of rabbinic texts. So now we can sort of transition a little bit uh, into this specific question of Torah and technology, right? So, you know, what happens in the 21st century?
0: By the way, I just want to point something out. We are not transitioning from Torah and technology, meaning print, the printing press is a technology.
1: Right, right. We
0: think of tech in terms of, you know, iPads and ChatGPT and stuff like that. But I mean, the printing press is a technology and it's a technology that changed the world.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So, yeah, you know, no, it's, obviously. It's important to think about that because, you know, we, we've we been dealing with technology for a lot of the, t- technology is not just what was, invented in the last 50 years
1: right it's actually i think it's an important point because obviously oftentimes people think about oh my god this is like you know the end of the world in terms of you know torah learning well there are other times in jewish history where we've had sort of similar challenges right in other words the printing press we take it for granted but you know it, it had its own challenges and you know there was a lot of discussion at that point about sort of how this would play out in terms of you know torah knowledge but thinking more in terms of just the question of let's say search engines and computers right so you know how does you know the 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 social fact of rabbinic authority and the way it applies in the 21st century context change when you start thinking about uh, the question of computers. Um, you, you've written about this um, specifically in the context of different postkim So maybe if you could sort of frame it and then we could talk one by one about different ways that contemporary rabbis are trying to deal with this challenge.
0: Okay, so let's start by framing it in terms of the gaonim. What the gaonim we're trying to do is so so part of part of my starting point is that rabbis never had guns, rabbis never had a police force, rabbis could never, I, w- I shouldn't say could never, could rarely enforce their decisions. Maybe, you know, they had certain authorities to like, I don't know, put people in cherem or even put people in prison, but ultimately the, the community itself was empowered, the rabbi shared power, or even was subservient to um, you know, communal leaders, lay leaders. They may have been Talmidei Chachamim, but they were functionally lay leaders. Uh, and certainly, you know, when you go beyond the local community, rabbis had no power, zero. Meaning, take, and, and let's say for an example, an Agunashayl, okay? Which are often the most har- harrowing type of question. Um very difficult the, the woman's future is, is completely contingent upon upon a decision now a rabbi says yes she's permitted to be remarry or a rabbi says in those rare instances no she's not permitted to remarry now does that it, it, how is that enforced there's no enforcement mechanism there's no police force there's no you know the, the only force that you have is the force of social sanction and the force of meaning the community has to buy in the rabbis only have power if the community buys in sometimes the person answering the question lives in a different country in a different empire right so questions come to the mahar sham in jezin where when he's when he's in the austrian empire questions are coming to him from the russian empire can you imagine in a regular Normal scenario where somebody is asking a Shila or somebody has a legal question, and instead of asking a local lawyer, asks a lawyer in a different country who's under a completely different legal jurisdiction. Right? It's 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 pretty wild, right? Obviously, Marsham doesn't have any real power across the border, even if he even if you want to say that he has some limited power in his own town or in his own region. And yet. When the Marasham says mutter, it's accepted. When the Sham says Asr, it's accepted. That's authority. That's the difference between authority and power. Okay. How does that happen? That's a really good question, and that would take us way far afield. But this is what I mean when, I, when I'm talking about the social fact, the social fact of, uh, of rabbinic authority. Now, we get to the question, how does one build authority. How does it get to be that everyone knows that such and such a rabbi is the authoritative one? You can trust him, right? When he says yes, his yes is good. When he says no, his no is good. Um, Rav Moshe Feinstein was asked this question in the 1970s, famously. A, uh, there was a New York Times, New York Times did an article on Rav Moshe Feinstein, like, how did you get to be the number one rabbi in the United States? He said, well, people started asking me questions. They liked my answers. They told their friends. More people started asking me questions. And so I, I, think, that, I think that's right. Although I think that Rav Moshe was actually, I can show how Rav Moshe was actually strategic in terms of how he wrote and how he published his psak. Meaning, Rav, let's put it this way. Rav Moshe wrote answers that he knew people would like and appreciate, even if they didn't agree. He wrote in a way that he knew that he knew who his audience was, right? And he wrote in a way that's deeply sympathetic and deeply resonant with his audience. Uh, and he also wrote at times, and he published at times, where you know, when he started publishing in the late 1950s, in the early 1960s, there was something of a vacuum. Hankin was starting his decline. And there was really nobody who was the postak in America. And Dafka during those years, Ravmosha is like, okay, time to publish Igro Smoke um, So I don't, I, I think that there is Ravmosha focuses on the demand side, and I think that there's a lot going on on the supply side. But ultimately, Ravmosha is right. Meaning, when people ask me, people, you know, people have asked me personally, and I'm sure they you get similar questions. Who decides who's the goddamn dog? Who decides? How did you know who made Rav Usher Weiss, for example, who made Rev Usher Weiss the post like, or one of the post Hadar? So my answer is, well, I did. And they laugh when I say, I'm deadly serious. They're like, what do you mean? I said, okay, you, Mr. Balabas, that's not his real name, uh, You have a question about Judaism, and in this case, your question is, who decides who's the Gadol Adar? Who do you come to to ask this question? Well, you just came to me, right? Now, if you came to me with questions that I couldn't answer, I've got to kick it up a level. Who am I going to kick it up to? Who am I going to go to with the Shiloh? Well, there's a short list, and the most prominent name on that list is Rav Asher Weiss. There are a few other names on that list. I have other, there are other posts that I consult with. But today, Rav Usher is, is probably the primary. So in that sense, uh, I'm deciding, as it were, right? If you think about it as, a, as, a, as an emergent hierarchy, a hierarchy that goes from the ground up, right? Somebody who doesn't know a lot wants an answer to a question. Somebody who does know a lot, he just doesn't know the answer to this question, wants to ask somebody, you know, Somebody who's a, who they trust, that's who they want to ask for an answer. And so they come to me, right? Or they come to you, or they come to anybody who's, you know, considered knowledgeable about Judaism, knowledgeable about halacha, but not in any, by any stretch of the imagination, not major postkin, right? And, and who do we go to if we have questions, right? So it, it, once you get to the top, right, there's going to be it's not going to be it's not going to come to a point because there are several leading there's more than one leading posake right? and a lot is going to depend on on other factors but at the end of the day right that's you know the, that's how the top of the hierarchy is reached the top of the hierarchy is supported by the people by the people who are listening who are obeying who are asking for guidance from the people at the top and the people in the middle right that middle class that secondary elite in which I include people like you and me, um, we're the ones who are providing access or, you know, we're the ones who are trusted by people who are our students or the people, you know, who are our Balabatim or the people who are our audience, our podcast listeners, whatever it is.
1: Yeah, but this is actually actually an area where you really feel sort of the tension that we were talking about earlier, right? Because... Let's sort of use the model of Reb Usher Weiss, right? So, in other words, if you take sort of let's say ordinary rabbis like me and you, we're sort of fielding you know questions on the ground. So, you know, before we had access to search engines and Google and stuff like that. So, if we got a question, we had to do like all the homework ourselves, and you know, present the question in a way that you know made Rav Usher Weiss or somebody else feel like this is a question which is intended for you know big leaguers. Right now, all of a sudden, you know, all we have to do is, you know, do a, you know, in order to get that access to the information to present the question. So all of a sudden, the information is much more accessible to the ordinary rabbi or to the non-rabbi. Right. So, you know, you can imagine that all of a sudden, you know, when the non-rabbi, when the sort of ordinary rabbi or the non-rabbi is thinking about halacha, He may say to himself, well, you know, what do I need to go to the Major League Baseball playing rabbi here if I can sort of access the same material? You know, I can just do Google searches. I can spend time on bar i I can look in Safaria Otzer Chachma, And I can sort of come, you know, access this information myself. So all of a sudden, you know, you're you're describing something which I think does reflect the way in which Pesach operates. But you do feel also in that description that the second, you know, information is so easily accessible, Right. It it may sort of make people feel like, well, what do I need? The, you know, the post or some great rabbi, if I have access to this information myself. So sort of how do rabbis, you know, given that reality, sort of not not necessarily push back, but sort of how do they sort of assert in a certain sense, their relevance in a framing and an environment where all of a sudden, you know, their massive knowledge, you know, can be accessed by anybody simply through a computer. Right. So that's
0: a great question. And in a certain sense, there, there's no way around it, meaning the fact that the Shulchan Aruch exists means that there's no rabbi, that mastery of the Shulchan Aruch is no longer going to be the mark of a great posek because anybody can look it up in the Shulchan Aruch now. Right? That, that, and, and today, it's not the Shulchan Aruch, it's you know, whatever it is, whatever the compendium, whatever the code is, and, and that's why halachic codes, popular halachic codes, every single one of them, from Mishnah Torah until Haninei Halacha, produces anxiety and it produces anxiety amongst those who were I, I was just reading a you know the the new Rashka Bahag
1: is uh Ravdov Landau.
0: Ravdov Landau. And I was reading this critique, a scathing critique that he wrote. Did you see this?
1: Yeah by Shmir Shavaskih
0: Shabbos Shabbos. about Shmir Shavaskihilchasa. Today yeah. everybody uses Shmir Shabbos Right. Right. Right? So it's just and and you know, and people were like, ah, yeah, what a joke. You know, people say, you know, they said this about Shemir Shavas Kehilchasa. Everybody says, you know, everybody today uses Shemir Shavas Kehilchasa. Um, you know, it was so silly that he wrote his critique. And, and my question was like,
1: was his critique correct? Meaning, were his points right? Was he just yeah. making it up? I would argue more than that. I'd argue that there's value in having the critique because it sort of pushes back on the medium. In other words, even though we do have Shemir Shabbos and we have the Shulchan Aruch and you have the Chayadam and you have the Shulchan Aruch and all these different codes, right? There, mm-hmm. There is value in the pushback, right? And explain to people right. that mastery of this text does provide mastery and you are knowledgeable, but it's not the same thing as sort of mastery of the totality of the uh, of the corpus. Yes, I agree with that. I agree with that 100%. I think
0: that it is Important and and I think that's important for every code, the Rambam and Beis Yosef and Mishnah Brura and um, you know and the Shmir Shabbos and Pekinei Halacha and Vechin Hala, right? That they're they're all made they're all they're all they're I wouldn't call them cheat books but they're providing a certain glimpse they're they're in by definition they're cutting out a lot of the a lot of the Shakla and they're cutting out a lot of alternative alternative opinions um and 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 i think it is important to push back to push back against that now I, i'm going to go back to the six we're, we're going to be constantly like jumping back from the you know 11th to the 16th to the 21st century i want to talk about the sma say from the essay nine which was and i'm basing what, what i'm saying now is based on Something that was written by Noam Samet, who wrote his PhD on the Kitsos and he's a Rosh Hashiva in, in Siach. He, so he he actually gave me like concrete confirmation of a theory that I had. My theory was like, okay, so how did the rabbis respond after the publication of the Shulchan Aruch? Well, when the Shulchan Aruch was published, it was a relatively short book that just gave you the halacha. If you open up a Shulchan Aruch now, it's like, oh my. Gosh, like forget you know, like you have the shach and the taz and the and the and the
1: chasam Sofer and rabbi kiva Eger. but like forget, yeah, I think, the, know, I, like, think the, I think I think Yosef Kara thought you could review it all every month.
0: Yeah, that's what yeah. he he wanted it to be. He just like he wanted it to be something that if you've already learned all of Beis Yosef, you can use, or at least this is what he wrote. Right. If you've already learned all of Beis Yosef, if you can take the Shulchan Aruch and it's like chasaring Beis Yosef every month. Right. Whether or not that's actually what it is is it is an interesting question there the work that's been written the, the work on that has been written has been done by uh, is being done or has been done by Tirza Kelman uh who wrote on the baseo safe and what what reveals if caro's goals in writing the uh, writing the the baseo safe were um What happens with the Sma? Well, first it happens with the Ramah. The Ramah adds like, okay, we're going to add some Ashkenazic stuff in here so that it's Davar HaShavah Lechol and the Ramah was criticized for that. Then what does the, what does the Sma do? The Sma turns the Shulchan, and it's a brilliant move. He turns, the, he turns the Shulchan Aruch into a book of Lambdas. You think you understood the Shulchan Aruch? Let me tell you something. You didn't understand the Shulchan Aruch you don't understand the Shulchan Aruch until you read what I have to say about it. And I'm going to go through all this and so analyze it and show you how the Shulchan Aruch gets to his maskana, right? So it's taking something that was simplified and it's like, okay, we're going to re-complicate this now. It's like, there's no going back. Right? The, Shulchan Aruch is the, Shulchan Aruch. the Shulchan Aruch is here and it's here to stay. Right? But he had internalized the critiques and he was a Talmud, the Sma, Rav Yosho Falk, was a Talmud of both the Roma, who was an early adopter of the medium, and the Maharshal, who was one of the fiercest critics, critics of the right, media. Right. And he internalizes them both, and he's like, look, okay, fine. I agree with my Rebbe the Roma that the Shulchan Aruch is here and isn't going anywhere, and it's, we're not going back to the prehistoric times of, you know, every community having their own manuscript. But, at the same time, I internalize the critique, and I, I don't think that the Shulchan Aruch is the right medium for it, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make the Shulchan Aruch really <laughs> complicated. Right? And he writes his He's the first of the Nosei Kalim um, on, on Choshen Mishpat. And then, you know, you have the, obviously the Shach and the Taz, but like later on, you get like the Ketzos and the Nasivis and you get the Prima gadim. Like, go through those Prima gadims. Like, man, these are not, these are not simple. And it's like you need a magnifying glass in the first place. But like, you know, if you're going to learn every, if you're going to say you don't understand the Shulchan Aruch until you see the Be'er and you see the Chel Machokek cake and you see the, and you see the mug of Avraham, It's you know it, it's a project, so right. you know and it's a it, it was that was the move. The move was okay. Now the Shulchan Aruch is the book we're going to make the Shulchan Aruch complicated. So in order to master, in order to in order to attain mastery, you don't just have to master the Shulchan Aruch. You gotta you gotta go through all of this other stuff. So, so what are people doing today, right? So now we'll jump back to the 21st century. So the key is not like okay baseline halacha, right? What most people should be de- should be doing in most situations. We get those in, we get those in a variety of books, right? You get it from the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, you get it from the Mishnah Bruder, the Araka Shulchan, the Yalkut Yosef, the Kafa Chaim, the you know, and Penine Halacha. Where's the pushback? Meaning where is where do we see? And by the way. Even the acceptance of penine halacha has its own internal logic. Meaning, penine halacha. If we'll, let's start with Rav Malamed. Penine halacha is a very well-written, clearly yet yeah, well-organized, um, clear, easy-to-read book. And I think that's part of what sells. Meaning, like the, the idea that like you need a safer lumdes, is like the, like its its target audience is not gedolim. Is not It's our. Its target audience is, you know, is Naftali Ben, right? Who's got a copy that's you know, in, in the New York Times when there was a picture of Naftali Bennett at home, you could see the Nine Halacha there. Uh, um, President Herzog also has one. Right? These are, you know, it's it's used in high schools. It's a high school textbook.
1: But that's a good example, because if you think about it, there obviously was a lot of pushback against uh, Rav Malamed there, there and was, There Hala was Lama. and there is. It still is. But that's a good example where, you know, I obviously think that the accessibility of the work is part of the reason why it's so popular. Uh That, that being said, you know, I, I do think that there may be more going on there. In other words, it's not just that the book is accessible. And I think part of the genius of that book, which maybe is sort of you know in a certain sense a reflection of what we're talking about here is that the book integrates a lot of um larger questions of why and meaning and questions about what is the halacha trying to accomplish now you've written about this or at least spoken about this in different contexts about what you've described as a civilizationist approach to halacha which is an excellent piece or maybe it was a podcast whatever it was it was great There's and two different I, things that i've
0: written and right. podcasted yes and right. I think that Rukum does an excellent job of showing how, how the pieces fit together. Exactly. Right. So I, I think that- Halakha that... is, is not just, uh, Halakha is a roadmap for an entire mm-hmm. society and entire civilization, and not just, this is what you're supposed to do with your life. And it, and it pervades everything to his discussion of whether or not you should play with Lego on Shabbos, to his, to his discussion of birth control, to his discussion of Trumos and Masros. It's really right. kind of, it's, it's, it's amazing.
1: But that 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 may be an example of where, you know, people could push back at Rav Malamud and say, well, wait a sec, you know, what am I getting from this book? It's just sort of like a book that collects bottom line. But I think the sort of response to the questioner could be that Rav Malamud is providing something that the ordinary person doesn't have access to, at least instinctively, which is a sense sort of how halacha as, you know, a system is building something which is much bigger than each individualized part. Meaning even the way he codifies and restructures Write the book is in of itself novel, and I actually, I, I keep referencing things you've spoken about in the past. I remember that when Modiin Rav Malamed came to Modiin and you introduced him, I remember that you made a really interesting observation that it really hasn't been since the Rambam that somebody has sort of really sure. reorganized the tour, the tour. Sorry, since the tour, as someone has really reorganized the way in which halacha is packaged, right? So, it's, yeah. in other words, it's a really interesting thing. In other words, you're, you're you're reading books which are sort of part of a whole series. Actually, just bought. Uh, the whole series yesterday as a gift for somebody. And when you get the whole series, you see, wait a second, this is this is organized in a way that the organization paints a picture. I think this is an example of like him trying to, you know, present halach in a way that it's bigger than just the localized applications.
0: That's right. Meaning if you want to talk about like how it's organized, the original organization obviously is the Torah itself. The Mishnah comes along and reorganizes it into six siddharim. The Rambam comes along and organizes it into 14 books. The Torah comes along and reorganizes it into four books, four sections, and along comes Rebbeli as a and he's like, "Okay, we're going to organize it." He, he's not at all based on uh, the Shulchan Aruch, right? His his volume on Kashrus contains Mitzvah Sateluyos Pa'aretz, and that's not where it was. It's not where it is in the Rambam. It's not where it is. It's not where it is in the Shulchan Aruch, obviously, because it's not in the Shulchan Aruch. Right. He'll also even, um,
1: even he'll have, for example, like 20 pages on the Yamaka, whereas like, you know, and Shulchan Aruch has got like one line. You know what I mean? So in other words, like he has all these other sort of subcategories, which get a lot more press than they would like in a classical work. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So I think that that's a, a big part of his appeal. And I think that that's also the pushback. I have my own critiques of Muhammad. Right? And, and my critiques are not so far from the critiques of codifications in general. Right, I think that right, right now he's working on a book on on Geirus, and I think that the way I have a, a you know, I, I think that the way that Geirus is um, you know, that that already in the time of the Gemara and beyond, right there, there's always been almost like a two tiered structure in Geirus, like a and a or something that's, you know, or, the, or a retail and a wholesale, right, it's something that you, there was never really, you don't really want to have like, okay, these are the rules of Geras you know, under these circumstances you can, and under these circumstances that you can't, because it was left to the discretion, to local discretion, okay, these, you know, local rabbinim you know, is based on a variety of different complicating factors, are gonna are gonna make a decision, and when you come along and you say that, like, okay, this is, you know, this is the binyan situation that we should be all doing today, and you codify it like that, um, it becomes a, it 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 alters the way that people are gonna think about, are gonna think about the halacha, right? It becomes a you're taking that you're taking these decisions out of the hands of the local rabbis who are gonna ultimately the ones who have to decide whether or not to be or this person and you're saying like no no there's there's there are rules and you know there are codified rules and if you meet those criteria then great and if you don't then no um i have more to say on this i'm gonna i'm gonna leave it at that
1: yeah maybe um, we'll have you on another podcast about Rav mob but I, w- I will just push back there for a second i think it's related though in other words the critique, which you're describing, which I think is a fair critique, and obviously the question of Hilkos is complicated, but it may be totally sort of built into the larger project in other words what he's describing yeah. if he's talking about a civilizational model for halachic discourse well we haven't had a, a state for such a long time right so obviously what you're describing is a more localized model a model that's existed in diaspora communities that agree or disagree right he's but his point may just be that well yeah but you know this is the nature of the project right and it's going to generate a different type of halachic vision that we've had right in the past um, I, I
0: agree with that. I, I agree with that, but with reservations, meaning I think it depends on the area of halacha. For one of the things that he got into trouble with, one of the things that he's been criticized for is that he gives like a blanket header for, uh, for birth control for a year, and he leaves it up to the discretion of, uh, of the couple, whether or not they're gonna go on birth control for a second year, um, you know, a newlywed couple. Now, in the past, these, you know, questions like this aren't having, this is the first time that this has been codified, right? It's, you, the, the answer was always, ask your local Orthodox rabbi, and the rabbi consults, and the rabbi says, A, B, or C. Um, you know, sometimes he'll give a heather, sometimes he won't, you know, based on the situation. And all of a sudden, he comes along and says, okay, blanket heather for an entire year. So, you know, and people were upset about that. Now, this is an issue, birth control, how far back does the pill go? 75 years at this point? So it's not like you're going against, you know, it's been a couple of generations and he says, okay, after a couple of generations, we can rethink whether or not that's the model for how we want people to, you know, how we want people to deal with this issue. And maybe it's time to go to a more broad-based approach where, you know, there is a blanket header. Um, I think you can agree or disagree with that in a much more, like, I I happen to agree because, you know, especially if if there's like a, a short, period of courtship and engagement, um, I think people should know each other for a while before they start having kids. And I think that if it's not going to work out, it's, a much, it's much less complicated if they don't have kids. Um, so I, I hear that. I hear where he's coming from. Um, other people disagree. And I think that's fair. I think that's fine. Right? When it comes to gay you're talking about something that has a much longer history. That's yeah. where I would distinguish. Right. we got to get the, some of the other...
1: Yeah, let's let's try and transition for uh, the last part of the podcast, To I mean, you mentioned a few other personalities, rabbinic personalities, who are sort of struggling with the same issue. Let's talk a little bit about Rav Shechter Schechter. Rav Schechter obviously operates in a very different space than Rav Eliyaz or Malamed. He learns, learned in different Shivot, You know, he's in the U.S. versus in Israel. But I think, you know, w- one of his um, you know most important contributions to the world of halachic discourse is his bakiyas. I mean, his bikkuris yeah. in the world of Shas and postkim is is simply extraordinary. So, um, you know, he has been at the forefront of criticizing um, different groups who have tried to sort of like uh, argue for halachic positions that are not in line uh, with, you know, sort of the, the worldview of the YU uh, Rosh Shiva. And yeah. um, you, you pointed out in some of the things you've written that he, he's sort of he's very sensitive uh, to this critique, the idea that all of a sudden, you know, the postkim are no longer critical because everybody has access. Uh, to information yeah. via the computer and yes, I'm, not an, I'm not an expert in, in Chuvas, but i think this is one of the i've read one of the few Chuvas i've read where he actually makes joke right about the amha aritz right? Amos alone. exactly yeah. has a fear of shabbos Right? And he has this joke where he says you can't says, look it up says, on
0: the Barilan on Shabbos. Exactly,
1: exactly. The Yoshami says that the Amaris is fearful of Shabbos, which presumably just means that even the ignoramus is aware of the severity of Shabbos. But he he sort of you know makes a pun out of it and says that the Amaris is fearful of Shabbos, because on Shabbos everyone knows that he's really an ignoramus because he can't use his bar-lancy, right? But in that joke, right, in that critique, you, you feel sort of that he he's he's struggling with something in terms of the nature of you know, uh, right. you know how people Relate to rabbis in the twenty in the 21st right. century. Well it's
0: also it's interesting because he makes a distinction in, in that, in that, in that chuva between something that somebody like I think the language that he uses is yodeyame atmo." He knows it from his own learning, he knows it himself versus something that he picked up, you know, from a piece of software. Right. And like that's a distinction that like I I don't where do you draw the line? Like how, I I don't know. I don't know where to I, 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 I don't know the difference between something that I know because I learned it on a computer and something that I know because, like what what does that mean? You day of my oxmo, right? it's 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 hard to put it's hard to define it, but i you see where he's coming from. It's
1: like, do you really know it, or is it just something that you saw? It's actually an interesting application. also I saw of his, where he struggled with this issue, where one of his critiques has always been, that uh, more liberal groups who have tried to sort of push halachic visions, he always felt like they were never endorsed by somebody who had the halachic stature of like somebody who is a gadol. And then uh, when yeah. Professor Daniel Sperber started to endorse, you know, partnership in name and stuff like that. So, you know, I think Rishakhtar obviously is aware of the fact that Professor Sperber is a, is a massive talmachacham and obviously has extraordinary bachias. So I think in some later iteration of one of his response, uh, he said something like, well, you know, he's a talmachacham sheino mukar kiposik, Right. In other words, he sort of shifted a little bit and said that it's not, and he's right, it's not just about knowledge, it's about you know, communal authority and you know, it's you know, who are you vis-a-vis the question and the questioner, right? So I think even there, there's a certain sense that like, you know, he, he's sensitive to the fact that now that everybody has access to the web, you can just call up any rabbi you want from all across the world and start asking a question, well, you know, who is this rabbi in the context of you know, the larger communal conversation?
0: Yeah. Um, with regard to Rav Schechter, so there's a couple of things that are, I think, very interesting features of his psak in general. Number one is that he's very empirical. Amongst, amongst the postgym that we have today, he's among the most empirical, meaning he's the most willing to rely on scientific knowledge and expertise. And bain Lukula, Bain Bain Lukula, Bain Lukula, yeah. right? He, he wears tcheles because, you know, based on textual evidence, but also based on archaeological evidence. And I, Heard him speak about the archaeological, the role of the archaeological evidence in in restoring this lost tradition. He says that the archaeology is almost like it provides it 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 is it, it's itself, right? It allows us to, to telescope the Masora, right? That if we can find that this was their Masora back at that time, then we can continue their Masora. Um, you see it in terms of. Um, you know, the bracha that you're supposed to make on, on oats, right, that he holds that you shouldn't make a mizonos based on the research of Professor Yehuda Felix and other botanists who reached the conclusion that oats are not the shibbolet shual that the Mishnah, that the Mishnah talks about. It was first identified with, with oats, um, you know, in, in the 11th century, Rashi identifies shibbolet with oats, the aruch identifies Shibola with oats, there's at least a 900 year tradition of identifying Shibola with oats, um, but, but Rav Shachter, based on ban, he says, no, you shouldn't. And therefore you can't be Yotze the mitzvah of achilat matzah with oat matzah. And therefore you can't, you know, you don't make a Mizonot or an or, ala um, uh, on on oatmeal. Um, you know, that's, again, I haven't seen anything. This is what I've heard in his name, but from multiple sources over the course of, mul- of many years. Um, and same thing with uh, using horseradish as maror. I've heard that he is against making the bracha balachilas maror on horseradish because horseradish was not identified as one of the different species of maror until, uh, until the 13th century. And that was based on the research of another botanist, who's also a Talmud, Professor Ari Schaefer. So you see, and, and he's changed some things in the Nusach of the Ksuba based on the grammatical, comment, grammatical notes that were given to him by Professor Richard Steiner, who was in a, uh, a um, what was uh, um, what call it, an Assyriologist, somebody who was an expert in, in, uh, in Aramaic and Aramaic grammar. He says, okay, this is expertise, and we're going to take that into into consideration in our halakhic decisions. He's very consistent on this. And even if it means going against traditions that are hundreds and possibly even thousands of years old. Not thousands of years old, but more than a thousand years old. So that, in certain ways, that exposes him, because Somebody else can come along and say, well, I learned a little bit of science, or I, you know, did a couple of things, and I know the halakhic source. So I'm also going to come up with a psaac that goes against uh, a few hundred or a thousand years of psaac. And Rav Schechter is like, no, you, you, you can't do that. Like, well, why not? So Rav Usher Weiss, he can come along and say, like, listen, I wear a strimal, my father wore a strimal, my grandfather wore a strimel. Rav Schachter can't do that. He can't appeal to tradition in the same way because in a lot of ways, his sock is much more um, anti-traditional. I wouldn't say anti-traditional, untraditional. Um, and at the same time, he's, you know, as you said, his knowledge, it, you know, he's a phenomenal buff. His, his knowledge is, is unparalleled, but that's the most, let's say, that's the that, that's something that can be, Replicated by machine it can be replicated. That, by machine. So it how does be he imitated by machine?
1: So that, what what would you say is the way in which he pushes back? You know, aside from the issue of like you know the Amah you know, not being able to use his computer on Shabbos, right? So how does he sort of push back in terms of like what does it mean to be a posake on in Sunday to Friday? but right? How does he push back on that?
0: So I think that part of it is exactly that joke. I think that he has. I mean, he's a he's a a great rabbi and a great teacher. And he's had thousands of students coming o- over the years. And his students have become, you know, all of half of the YU Russia yeshiva today are more than half, maybe, are his Talmudim. His Talmudim are also stole rabbis across the United States. His, his students are rabbin and yeshivas in Israel. All the American yeshivas have students of Rav Shechter as their rabbin. And he has instilled in his Talmudim this idea that. For anything, but you know, for simple questions maybe. But for any question that involves any sort of um, communal public policy, or any question that you, you know, that that involves any sort, anything that's sort of going against the grain of tradition or or the way things have been done, you don't make that decision on your own. You you go to somebody greater than yourself and ask them the question. Now he doesn't insist uh... that it's him. Right. And it's him, a lot of his tell me, him and his own son consults with Ravusher Weiss on a lot of things. But they've internalized this idea that you don't pass it around on your own.
1: Aside from just, uh, you know, aside from the pedagogical move, I think that one of the things I think Rav picks up on, um, which, you know, the rub has that one line in, in the eulogy for the brisker rub. About the idea that regular scholars are, you know, regular Jews are engaged to the Torah based on the Gemara of like, you know, mitursha, right, and mitursha, and then he he wants to say that you know regular people are engaged to the Torah, but you know, real talmidei chachamim are are you know have have the level of nisuin with the Torah. Right, and the idea is that you know the, the metaphor is kind of like you know when you're dating somebody, you're not really sure what to get them for their birthday, but you know after you've been married for 30 years, you have a pretty good sense of sort of like you know what your spouse wants, right? Yeah. So I think the idea here is there's also a sense that like mastery of material. This may get back to what you are saying before that how do you learn things? In other words, mastery of material gives you in a certain sense like a a refined sense of halachic intuitions, right? And somehow when you have those intuitions, right, that's what allows you to get a sense of like where the Torah is going. It's not exactly, you know, what Rabusha Weiss is talking about when he talks about a Torah, right? But it is something similar in the sense that there's something beyond just, you know, expertise, right, that you get access right. to by becoming a Bucky. He said,
0: I, I, and this is going back, I heard him speak about this when I was an undergraduate at YU. Um, it's like, if you have part of a picture, can you fill in what you're missing? I think he said it on, when when he was talking about when Rashi says Libi Omerli when describing the the aphode and this was before you know, like, Libi Omerli there are poskim who say Libi
1: Omerli before it became cool that. by Ravusher voice. yeah Ravusher
0: <laughs> very rarely uses it in halacha contexts by the right. way right. Slomo Kluger says Libi Omerli all the right. time I'm saying it's not you know um but the point is the point that Ravasha was that Ravsha was trying to make is that what is Libi Omerli it's like if you have 99% of a picture and you're missing one piece of the puzzle, if you have a 500-piece puzzle and you have 498 of the pieces or 490 of the pieces, you can, probably, you, can, you can do a pretty good job figuring out what's in the last pieces that are missing, right? If you have a 500-piece puzzle and you only have 50 pieces or even 150 pieces, you can't really figure out what the whole puzzle is supposed to look like. Right. So that's a thing similar to what you're to what you're describing. Right? right. That there are only certain people like once you have the whole picture, you might be able to like fill in, you know, the things that are that, that are missing. But
1: maybe maybe we could maybe, whole picture. Right. Maybe we could end uh, by just talking about uh, one other um group of, of halakhic uh, thinkers you've mentioned in the past. And that is, I, I'm pretty sure you applied a similar framework to thinking about uh, the women uh, who are answering halakhic questions at Nishmat. No, I know, I think you edited that volume that was translated into English. So maybe yeah, talk a little try. bit, yeah, you translated it. So maybe talk a little bit for a few minutes just about sort of this angle. You know, we've spoken a lot about Shawa'i, Shachter, sort of classical post-game, and also this new genre, you know, which is different, right? So sort of like, what is the yeah. genre there? And how is it playing into the larger picture?
0: Right, So I don't know if it's a, if it's a different genre right the, it, to the extent that there's you know Shazu chuvos is the is the funniest genre of of rabbinic literature just because you have things that are so different sometimes you have like political tirades in as as chuvas and sometimes you have like these two word you know two word answers and sometimes it's you know it's ideology and sometimes it's just a Chiddush or a hesvid or a vart that somebody said in his son's bar mitzvah or whatever, all kinds of stuff. I don't want to talk about it as a new genre. What I do want to do is talk about it as a different kind of appeal to authority, right? Now, all of the cases that we've been talking about, Rav Shechter and Rev Usher and Rav Eliezer malamid they're not making direct appeals to authority. Rav comes closest. Um, they're not saying like, ask me all of your Shilohs because I'm the expert. They're, they're demonstrating their expertise in different ways, meaning they're, the way that they speak and the way that they write, the way that they organize their thoughts convey expertise that make it so that not necessarily the Amaaretz, but the people in the mid-tier right, the, the secondary elite, um, feel comfortable asking them their Shilas or feel, in the case of Reshechter, feel that they have to ask, you know, that you know, feel a, much more of a concern about answering a Shilah without consulting with a Gadol. So now we look at Nishmat. One of the things about, Nish, about Nishmat is that they are very, very careful to avoid any sort of claim to authority meaning they're very careful to not portray themselves as paskening halach. What, what they're doing, I think there's a three, there are three aspects to their, to their appeal, and this is the way that they write their answers or answer their questions on their hotlines and write the answers to questions on their website, and this also comes through in the book. Right? They want to show that they are halachically proficient, They want to show halachic proficiency. If they're asked about a particular sugya, they're aware of, they know that sugya, and are able to explain that sugya in a way that is understandable to their, you know, to the to the person consulting with them. That's number one. Number two, and this is something that this is where they start to uh, distinguish themselves from other people who are in the field. Right? They want to show that they are proficient they're very well aware of the medical gynecological issues right they want to show that they're you know that they're they're willing to the clinical issues i would call them right they speak about things in a very clinical sort of like detached almost medical sense um but they too they're very they're coming with like a certain proficiency in 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 the medical issues that are involved in these kinds of questions. And number three is that they. number, the third, the third issue is the tone, right? They come up, they come across a tone. They're very careful, for example, at least in in, in English, right. Um, To use terms like, you know, a, a husband and a wife are forbidden to each other, right. Or, you know, things like that, and rather, rather than using terms like, and the woman is tame," the woman is tamea. even though it's, it's true, right? Meaning the Tuma and Tara aspects and the Isr Vaheser and the Isr Vaheter aspects are, are inseparable, right? The Isr of a woman and husband being together stems from the Tuma, right? The Tumasnida that the woman is subject to. Right. But by framing it in a different way, by saying you and your husband are forbidden to each other rather than saying, yes, you're considered Tamea, or you're considered impure. Right. It, it's, a, it's a different way of speaking. Like they've developed an entire way of speaking to their audience that I think makes it. And, and again, we're not talking about, they're not changing the meaning and they're not changing things that, you know, they're not, they're not saying anything that's, they're, they're not saying anything wrong. Right. But the way that you say things right? The way that you say correct things, true things can go a long way, right? And I think that that's one of the things that they have, they've developed an entire way of speaking to women, an entire vocabulary that they'll use, right? That makes women feel more comfortable. And so women feel comfortable mm-hmm. addressing their questions to the Nishmat right? And they feel comfortable doing it. Um, Rabbanim feel comfortable that they're station is not being usurped or surpassed by um by Yoatzot and and these are all ve- these are all built in these are all part of i think this is part of the self image of the Yoatzot this is part of the self image of the entire program we are not trying to replace rabbis we are trying to bring a different set of sensitivities and proficiencies and awarenesses to a very To a discourse that is very, very difficult for a lot of women to talk about. And we are trying to make it a lot more comfortable for them to talk about it. So, does that make them a halachic authority? Depends how you define your term, right? Define your terms and take a pick. It definitely makes them an address for halachic questions.
1: Okay, Ravelli, this is amazing. Really an extraordinary conversation that really spanned a lot of different uh, time periods and a lot of different sort of subtopics. So thank you so much. Just uh, one quick question to end the podcast. If people want to read more of uh, your writings and stuff that uh, you've written, what's the best place to go? I know you have an academia page. I know you have a Twitter account, the Adder Rabbi Is there any-
0: Twitter and uh, my podcast, which I'm not very regular about posting, but uh, um, that's uh, down the rabbi hole. Okay.
1: Excellent. Well, really, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is excellent. And um, thanks again. And if anybody has any questions, comments, we're always uh, excited about hearing feedback and uh, you always send us an email and uh, have a great day. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarek Iyun, please share it with others. Also might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at Podcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarek Iyun, a podcast of Yeshivat Oraita.